Welcome to the Better Bozo. Better Bozo. And we've got Steve with us today, which is a pleasure. Steve Benedetto. I met Steve at one of Jeff's men's groups. Around the fire. And um, was quite taken. (laughs) That sounds so romantic. Steve is a civil rights lawyer, an armchair yogi, a student of epic storytelling, which I want to hear more about, and an enduring optimist in a world seemingly hell-bent on self-destruction. He is the founder of multiple companies, including the People's Law Firm, a public interest civil rights law firm representing victims of police violence in Colorado, Arizona, and California. When he is not obsessing about the law or the state of our planet and its inhabitants, he can generally be found reading, but rarely finishing books, playing music and singing off-key, and hiking the boulder flat irons with his wife and two dogs. And occasionally writing runoff sentences, especially. <laughs> it's helpful that you're a lawyer. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, that's. I think it's a natural career path for the uh, runoff sentence. Stream of consciousness. Sentence, right? yeah. yeah, I like runoff and run on. Run on sentences. Yeah, yeah. your run on sentences run right off the page. <laughs> so I like that. Just by reading that, I already get uh, the impression that you're not some run of the mill bozo. That you are um, familiar with what's going on around you and sounds like you're quite dedicated already. I, I think so. I'm aspiring to be a better bozo. Um, but yeah, I, I um, certainly dedication is a big piece of it uh, and, and kind of that awareness of, of what's happening in the world beyond my own you know, little sphere for sure. I want to dive in a little bit to dedication and why somebody I can relate sometimes. And then other times, especially lately can feel, uh, you know, a, a modicum of despair that can be like a little nugget and it can be a massive overwhelming, uh, feeling. And within that dedication feels like quite a weight. Is that right? that inaccurate how does it feel for you it i think a weight is a good way to describe it yeah i um my experience of that dedication isn't that it's always voluntary and sometimes it does feel like a, a little bit of a a little bit of a heaviness to it a little bit of a burden um and and also at the same time i think there's a um a feeling to it of you know what what's the alternative um, which does make it a little easier sometimes, you know, the alternative to being dedicated and, uh, to being aware of, of what the hell's going on in the world. What, what does that look like? And what's that brought me in the past, which, which is generally not, not positive. Can we, can we slow that down and stretch it out a little bit? What do you mean? What's the alternative? For me, the alternative has generally been kind of checking out disassociation. um, Focusing on things to the extent I focus on anything, 
um, that are kind of brought to me externally, not really exercising in any kind of discernment and choice uh-huh. and sovereignty in terms of what I'm choosing to do. Um, whatever distractions happen to come up, social media, sports, um, you know, mainstream news, whatever happens to be in my uh, consciousness at that time, which is usually dictated by my surroundings. I want to, I want to, it feels like we're talking around something and I want to touch on it and I, I don't know exactly how to speak to it directly. Um, so when you're not, so when it's not the alternative, uh, you set, you feel more focused, more grounded, more present working on what, what do you do? So I, primarily what I do is, uh, I'm a civil rights lawyer. Um, that, that doesn't look like Atticus Finch on most days or almost any days. Uh, basically I sit in front of a computer and research and write most of the time. Um, but what that researching and writing is ultimately aimed at is trying to recover money for people who've been injured by police, uh, generally in excessive force. Also on behalf of inmates in, in, uh, correctional facilities who've been injured by correctional officers, um, and then through doing that, trying to make change, sometimes small changes, sometimes big changes in, in governmental systems, generally policing and corrections, uh, typically speaking until the government has to write a check to someone, they're not very motivated to change something. We're not dealing with areas where there's large interest groups that promote things. So that's, that's usually what I'm doing is, uh, sitting in front of a computer and pecking away on a keyboard and, and ultimately having an end insight of trying to make some type of of small systemic change. Oh, wow. But I'm hearing two things. I'm hearing, um, I'm hearing that when you meet someone who has been unjustly dealt with by law enforcement or their rights have been violated by law enforcement or, uh, uh, or have been oppressed in a way, rights have been violated. Um, you're there to make sure that somebody is held accountable for them specifically. So you are in a way an ally, but, uh, but beyond that, I also hear that there's a larger strategy that if that the only way policy changes is if government feels that there's a consequence to a wrongdoing, a systemic wrongdoing. Exactly. And, and generally that shows up in a, in a budget line item for litigation costs and costs of settling. Sometimes more acutely, you're going to see it on the news. Uh, if we settle a big case, it gets news coverage. It makes it harder for city council members to run for re-election. makes it harder for police chiefs to continue to allow their internal affairs divisions to uh, essentially cover for police officer misconduct instead of actually investigate it. So it's, it's all about, uh, on the micro level, getting that kind of media attention and public attention to an issue. And then on the, on the macro level, that line item for litigation costs and settlements can ultimately make a difference in making policy change. Okay, I'm going to jump in, Mika. Do it. Because this is really cool, and I also <laughs> don't really care about it. Not that I don't care about it, but I, you know, I want to talk about the other piece that feels really up, which you pointed to, which I want to relate this to being a man and, get, and trying to give a shit in the world. That's what I thought we were to talk about today, but I was happy to, uh, to, yeah, no, to, that's to cool. riff on the only thing I actually know something about. <laughs> I don't buy that for a minute, Steve. You know about lots of things. Uh, but the, but the notion of, and I can relate to this, and I, I know from knowing Mika that uh, I'm going to speak for you here. You can tell me if it's wrong, but you can relate to this. It's kind of the burden of trying to give a shit in a society where I feel like men are not 
ever encouraged to really give a shit about anything except for ourselves. Sure. So that feels like part of what um, I, I can really relate to. You're saying, I try to give a shit often. It is a new muscle, relatively speaking, certainly the last, I mean, not the first two decades of my life and maybe not the middle decade. I'm not quite 50, but <clears throat> I'm close. Um, and trying to give a shit, I really struggle with when I'm tired and it's hard. I go back to food, sports, sex, objectifying women, you know, not really giving a shit about anybody but myself. So that feels salient here in terms of what you were pointing to, Mika, around your devotion, Steve, around being a civil rights lawyer. Because you could make a fuck ton of money just doing, I'm sure, uh, accident cases, uh, you know, vehicle car accidents or shit like that. You know, those guys on the billboards in Arizona, they're looking like cool and friendly or badass, you know, hit, in a, hit by a car, call blah, 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 blah. I mean, right? is, is that right? true? Oh, it's, it's totally true. Yeah. I mean, the the way the personal injury model for representing injured people is set up is mm. attorneys get between a third and 40% of every settlement. So Holy yeah, you get, shit. you get someone that's been paralyzed by a tractor trailer with a $5 million insurance policy and you can make a million and a half dollars in a day. Wow. So what on earth compels you to Not do, to do, do that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are you nuts? Well, yeah. I, I don't know if it's that linear where on, on the one hand I have the, 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 the clear option to make a million and a half bucks a day and I choose to live a vow of poverty, um, <laughs> being a civil rights lawyer instead. And I'm trying to combine those two things and make a little bit of money doing what I'm doing. Um, but no, I, I think your, your question's an interesting one, Jeff, because the... I think there's a unique set of challenges in doing what I'm doing, um, not just choosing to give a shit, but choosing to give a shit about civil rights and social justice. And I think this is probably something you can relate to, Mika. Um, being a white man. Not you, Jim. And, no, uh, not, yeah. you can, you can, you're, you're not a white man. I'm just so, an yeah. infant when it comes to giving a shit about social justice. I also have some uh, other grie grievances to air potentially, but not right now. Uh, but, but in particular, I think being in activist spaces... Um, people that dedicate their lives to social justice, where there's an initial hurdle to overcome of, do you really give a shit? And do you give a shit for the right reasons? Mm. And why are yeah. you here? That's um, what I get curious yeah. about. Because one of my challenges, I'm going to air one of my grievances right now, in the social justice warrior world, it feels like uh, giving a shit for the right reasons gets blown past. And it's the sort of social justice capital the cool of being a social justice warrior. And we don't have to go down that road, but I am curious to hear more about giving a shit for the right reasons, what that is for you. Sure. Well, and, and I think it's a, it's a challenge as, as men living in a world where I think it's, it's kind of a pressure cooker for all of our dysfunctions, whatever kind of happens to come up, but especially for, for those of us that have been raised in this white world of, um, glorifying comfort and comfort seeking. Mm -hmm. um, there is, there's a piece of that where uh, you see it all the time on social media to the point that I've almost had to completely opt out of social media of this race to, uh, to, to, to prove a higher level of wokeness whenever anything comes up as a white male. And, and, and I think among white people in general, but particularly among white men, this piece of, um, you know, I've, I've tried to please people my whole life because that generally leads to more comfort and peace in my life. So there's an opportunity here where I see 
some kind of um, discord or, or um, I don't know, uh, combat in some way to then side with whoever I think is going to lead me to the highest level of comfort given some level of, you know, sanity in my life. And I think that often takes, takes the form of this competition to show that I'm more woke than the next guy. Let me, let me race to that place where I can say, this is horrible. This is outrageous. And, and really, I think that tends to, to force us to lose ourselves. And, and I've been in that place before when I first started discovering this work five, six years ago, um, after Michael Brown was shot and found myself on Twitter hurriedly racing to retweet, uh, you know, the black lives matter women, um, started that hashtag hurrying to, to, you know, give kudos and applause to everybody I could find, um, without really understanding what I was doing. And, mm. and I think for me, um, the right reasons, um, are from a real place of acknowledging my role in the system, um, mm. not trying to fix it all myself and also not feeling shame or guilt about my privilege, but owning that and saying, how can I use that privilege to actually make an impact that might make someone else's life a little bit better? Okay. There's a lot there. Yeah. Uh, just I, in I, the I last tend to do few that. sentences. That's, a, <laughs> that, That's good. We'll unpack this shit. Um, I want to ask a basic question. I want to ask, because you mentioned your experience of um, being a man, and I'm curious what your experience um, has been of men in your life in okay. general. Can we hold that question? Cause you want to? Yeah. Cause there was a lot in there and I wanted to actually speak. To okay. Go ahead. Cause that's a great question. I know we talked about that before. So you said some version, Steve of, you know, for the right reasons and you didn't know what you were doing when you retweeted this, you know, about the, the Michael Brown shooting and, and it feels important that cause Mika has this great, phrase he came up with that I love. We're fumbling up the learning curve together mm. as better bozos and deeper doofuses. Um, and, and here's where I want to make a plug and get your take on, because like Meek and I don't really know what we're doing. You know, we're, we're definitely figuring some shit out and it's I a humbling that. Yeah. Yeah, oh, <laughs> that we don't know what we're doing. Thanks. Great. Yeah. Accurately <laughs> reported. Um, and I feel like there's real value in, in making a mess and trying to fumble our way to a better place. Because one of the traps I see, especially for men, is that we got to get it fucking right the first time. Mm. And we have to be perfect. We got to nail it. We have to crush it. And we have to out of the park. And if we don't, well, then we're a loser, we're a failure, whatever it is. Um, and I think it's led to a lot of paralysis where we don't really have to do anything because we're the most privileged class out there, you know, white, male, heterosexual, cisgendered Americans. So that feels important. And, and Mika, I'd love for you to weigh on this too, of, I love the fact that you started, right? Didn't just sit on the sidelines that maybe, yeah, you had some, I'd say a mixed bag of motivations. Like, let me be cool by retweeting this thing in Black Lives Matter. I'm a white dude. Check me out. And Great. Now you're, you're more refined. If you hadn't done that, there's a good chance you'd still be on the sidelines. I think that's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's learning those lessons along the way. Um, but certainly the, the desire to seek acceptance um, and congratulations from people of color of, yeah. oh, great, here, here's an ally. And what the fuck does that term even, are we allowed to use the F word? I assume yes, so. Yeah, okay. um, what, what the fuck does that term even mean? <laughs> Um, and, and 
and, and in terminology in general, it's, I think that perfectionism of, um, I think it, I think it creates a bar, particularly in the social justice space to people getting involved because there's this petrifying fear, particularly among white people, mm-hmm. uh, of using the wrong word because you use the wrong word and all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're canceled. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, it's tough. It's, it's a challenging space with a bar to entry that a lot of people I think aren't willing to bridge for that reason. I think we already feel that pressure as men and I think you can, it gets amplified in that space. Okay, fair, but I don't buy that that's, that your motivation to be involved and to show up as a civil rights lawyer for the people and the policy change that you do is to be, quote, comfortable. For sure. You've got a different, you've got another drive. That might be part of it, and that might be comforting, but I don't know that that's your... That's the motor. That's the, I don't know. That's not what fuels your motor. No. In fact, that, that was, I think the origin story of what, you know, when I first started getting into this work, um, maybe there might've been part of me that was seeking that for, for now, the comfort is kind of my anti North star. If I'm feeling too comfortable, I think I'm in the wrong place. Uh, I'm, I'm generally seeking to move away from comfort because that's what I, I, and I think this is probably common, particularly among white men and this glorification of comfort. Um, I grew up fantasizing about the time in my life where I could always be comfortable. Like I'd work hard for a while and then move to San Diego and live on a beach. And then I would never be uncomfortable again. Yeah, um, seventy-two, yeah, 72 degrees every day. And, wow. um, yeah, nice breeze off the ocean. Well, and, retirement is the American dream. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think so. Don't ever learn how to live. Just work your ass off and then be really confused when you're 68. And social security's run out because... <laughs> Yeah, because we're in a trillion-dollar debt situation. It's a whole other thing. Yeah, the, that feels important. And the, the notion of the bill of goods were sold, that we should feel good all the time. I mean, there's all kinds of ways I think we can go there in terms of back to the perfectionism and the pressure and just that whole deal around we should feel good. We should always be savvy. We should always be smart. We should always have the right thing to say. You know, or we don't really necessarily give a shit about the right thing to say because we're white and male, so it's right. Period. Um, those are maybe side tracks, but that feels big in terms of what Mika was pointing to, and that I like your term, the anti North Star, and that to me feels really skillful to be able to say, oh, not just what is my North Star, but also noticing, oh, wait, I'm out on the margins again towards maybe that old one of you who just wants to feel good and pat yourself on the back and get some likes on a tweet or something. Right. Yeah, I think so. Um, for me having that, that recognition of when this thing comes up, it might be an indication that I'm, that I'm off track in terms of where I need to be in terms of where, where I feel the most purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. I want to relate. I want to hear more about, Maybe an origin story, essentially. I can share with you that when I finally was discharged from my military service, all through it, I had a pit in my stomach that knew quietly that whatever's going on right now is hella wrong. I am in the wrong. I am... I am the enemy right now. I'm on the wrong side of justice. And when I 
um, and in, 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 I, it's hard to describe the state of mind of being uh, a soldier after basic training in the army where there really is no free will and space to think, or at least that, that was my experience. Um, and, and I commend the people who, who, who can break out of that while in uniform. But when I was out, I exploded with, I have to do something. I am in the wrong. I need to fix what, um, you know, what is broken around me. And I wonder what your origin story is. So I had worked uh, for years as a corporate defense lawyer representing large corporations. And I think that has a ring to it of something that is deeply wrong or immoral, but it didn't feel like that to me. Mostly I represented big corporations against slightly smaller corporations and meaningless commercial disputes that involved millions of dollars for no one that really cared that much about it. Um, and we build hours, you know, kept track of our lives as attorneys in six minute increments. And that's really became the driving force of my life was what am I doing with the next six minutes? Who's paying me for my next six minutes? Um, that's how it's done. That's, that's how it's done. And, and sitting in a, in a, you know, 25th floor of a high rise in Phoenix and, um, yeah, uh, trying to rack up those hours as high as possible. Cause that's how I was and how all corporate lawyers by and large are, um, are graded and that's how their career progresses. How many hours can they bill? That's how you're valued. Exactly. Yeah. And so, um, I did that for a long time. And eventually, uh, when the economy went bad, I started to get involved in the firm's white collar criminal practice, which really wasn't a white collar criminal practice. It was a blue collar practice for people with white collar salaries. So I did a lot of drug representation, a lot of DUIs, um, basic blue collar crime and through the course of that, I started to see that my clients, sometimes just by virtue of the name at the top of, of the letterhead or the pleading, would, uh, would get breaks uh, that other folks weren't getting. And I thought it was because I was a fantastic lawyer, of course. Um, but I quickly <laughs> realized over the course of time, and, and primarily it was when I left that firm and started my own firm and stopped getting those breaks for my clients, that I realized there were, there were multiple standards. Um, and then... I realized yet there were other standards when people not only did not have money, but weren't white. And so I started to see that uh, in my criminal defense practice. But I don't think I really came to a a single moment, like you described, Mika, uh, until actually Michael Brown was shot. And I remember I was um, lying in bed with my wife. She was on social media. I didn't participate in social media. I was mostly checked out from most current news at the time. And she had seen a comment on social media that was so viscerally racist uh, on one of her family members' page that, you know, was someone who we knew. Um, but it was a comment from someone else on that page that we were both just disgusted by it. And uh, I kind of got up and was like, what's, what's happening in Ferguson? What's, what's this about? So I read a little bit about it. And then the next day when I was flipping through the channels um, is when I saw what looked like a military operation in the Middle East. I mean, tanks and uh, you know, <laughs> machine guns, 50 caliber mounted machine guns in the back of pickup trucks and a line of armed soldiers. And I thought it was going on in the Middle East. And I saw the byline, it said Ferguson, Missouri. And that was kind of my moment where I realized, holy shit, something, something's going on in this country that I've been overlooking. I've seen, I've seen pieces of it. It's been in front of my face, but I've been willing to overlook it for too long and I can't do this anymore. And that's when I, I left the firm I'd started that we were doing mostly personal injury work, not making $1.25 million a day. Um, 
but having that potential, that dream. Right. Um, but I left that firm doing that in criminal defense work, and then I started a civil rights firm. Just to make the connection, because it feels relevant, um, it's not a coincidence. The Ferguson and St. Louis police force train with Israeli forces to mm. learn how to control a civilian population in Palestine. So mm -hmm. the fact that Ferguson feels like the Middle East oh. is not a coincidence at, at all. Same same weapons, tear gas, rubber bullets, and and training. Never never knew that, but that's that was just kind of a a feeling I had watching. It was I thought for sure I was watching something from from the Middle East, and 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 didn't know what it was. I was fascinated by this is live coverage, which we hadn't seen certainly during the Bush administration, and very little during the Obama administration of live wartime coverage. So the way I, I um, hear what you're saying essentially is, and I agree, there's not one moment. Mine wasn't one moment either. There are moments where the facade is cracked a little more and you get to see in to a reality. And we, we discussed this as guys um, about how we, it's the water we swim in um, and we're not quite familiar with the fact, at least at first that, uh, there's so many, there's so much going on around us that we're not aware of. And so you get a peek into alternate reality or actually reality. truth is actually right. reality. We're leaving the alternate reality and getting a, a look through the crack of the facade, which right. feels like part of what we're talking about here. And you decide, what do you decide? What happens? At, at that point, I, you know, then this is kind of, I think my, uh, my interest in epic storytelling and Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey was that was a point at which I said, I've, I've got to do civil rights work. I, I can't continue to use the the educational privilege that I have and my law degree to, you know, try to make, just try to make as much money as I can doing personal injury work and charging people large flat fees for DUIs. Uh, and that's why I decided to start a civil rights firm, but that ultimately didn't happen for months um, because of that kind of, now, what Joseph Campbell would call the denial of the call, the denial of the call to action, that refusal of this is this is what I need to be doing. This is the work I need to be doing in the world. This is my dharma uh, in Eastern terms. And um, it feels really uncomfortable. And this is something I know. So let me stick to this. That feels like it's, you know, fantasy world and it's not realistic. So it took months to do it. But eventually I started the people's law firm and I turned myself into a civil rights lawyer. No training, no mentors. I just kind of figured it out. So for those listening, Dharma is essentially service, if you don't know. Um, Buddha Dharma Sangha, right? Buddha is the, what the practice, Dharma is the work, Sangha is the community. Um, there's something in there that, that has now come up a couple of times that I want to speak to, which is purpose. And I think part of the problem of, of being a man um, is we get fed these bullshit purposes. And I can really relate to what you shared and I, I'm impressed it only took months and not years to start a civil rights law firm. Uh, that feels like a pretty fucking good turnaround on a big epiphany in your life. Um, I, I struggle with a similar thing. Like even with this podcast, uh, one of me is like, oh no, now I'm going to you know, have a target on my back. Mika and I might have targets on our backs because the point is to actually stir some shit up. Because like you said earlier, I've been trained to be a nice guy. I've been trained to not have to really give a shit about things because I don't really have to. So why would I? Or keep your head down, keep your mouth shut. Yeah, precisely. Keep your head down, keep your mouth shut. And I want to go back to what you shared because it also feels quite relevant around St. Louis po police and 
<clears throat> Israeli or Palestine army training together, that fucking pisses me off. And, and we don't know that shit. So there, how would we ever know to be pissed off? There's so much we don't know. And, and here's where I bump up against my own as a man, in some ways, the futility of being pissed off. How the fuck do I make a difference? How do I make a change? Uh, and it makes me want to crawl back in my hole on my bad days and just, you know, masturbate and eat cookies or whatever. Hopefully separately, but I mean, hey, I might masturbate with cookies. <laughs> it's hard to say. Or drink beer and watch sports. Uh, right? Yeah, no, I can't get that out of my mind now. Take it back. Era <laughs> we're erasing. I can't take it back, that. dude. <laughs> I can't take it back. Chocolate chips melted everywhere. <laughs> All right. But you see where I'm going with this in sure. terms of, like, without going back to Campbell's hero's journey, without a purpose that's bigger than ourselves, and I think that's why the military is such a an attractive, even seductive option, albeit one that's deeply flawed in my opinion, because these manufactured missions that, that are provided for us, uh, and Mika, you're the only one that's been in the military here. My dad was in the Navy, so I have some background with it. And as were my, a couple uncles that I had, my actual, one of my uncles was a police chief and then got trained by the FBI. So there's some shit there for sure in terms of my family history. But all that being said, um, yeah, just the, the false bill of goods. We'll go back to that term because you're talking about this purpose that feels edgy. It also feels uh, counterculture, ironically, given what purportedly the Constitution states. Um, and then, like you said, I think you said some version on, on your you know, tougher days, it's easy to go back to the old ways. Sure. Like Miko's saying, keep your head down, just shut your mouth. Yeah, I want to also speak to a next level there. We can easily become self-congratulatory about showing up. Easiest thing to do. Hey, I showed up at the protest. I've done my duty. I'm, I'm good. Oh, yeah, I struggle with that every week. But then when you say dharma, my dharma here, my dharma of solidarity, knowing to show up, for the most part, begins with, all right, I, I got to show up, but then... A uh, next level that I personally reached has been a very humbling one. I want to show up. Let me tell you how to solve your problems. Listen to what I have to say. I know what I'm talking about. And then realizing, oh, wow, I really have no idea what I'm talking about. That took me an, an extra two or three years. <laughs> yeah. At least. I'm oh, still yeah. figuring that <laughs> one out. That's, the, that's where I'm at now. That's part of, I think, the DNA of a bozo. Yep. Uh, of a more sort of... Yeah, the the I don't want to say an enlightened bozo. That seems like a contradiction in terms, but but the the more on the path bozo who knows what he doesn't know, right? right? Has some humility around learning and participating differently. Well, and I think the shadow side to that is um, the ease with which we can we can get kudos and congratulatory uh, you know words and everything else from people that don't want to be told, are sick of fucking being told by people for years and years and years, particularly people look like us, white men. This is how you fix your problems, by coming in and saying, I don't know shit, I don't know anything. Uh, I'm just here to be here. Um, and that's that's another phase that I went through of uh -huh. like, oh, I, I can immediately ingratiate myself in an activist space by by denigrating my own experience, saying I have no idea. Uh -huh. um, and and what, I, what I'm struggling with now is 
that you actually there, do have an idea. There are some things I have ideas about. Some things, and there's there is some value to using my voice at some points, even while trying to recognize that there's a need for me to shut the fuck up most of the time. Okay, okay. So that there there's some there's some steps here that we're learning that comes along with there's the obliviousness of growing up and as a as a white cis straight man. Mm-hmm. There's the oh fuck the world around me is not what I thought. People around me are suffering unjustly, and I am benefiting from that. And I can do something about it. I have a role to play here. I can fix this. I am all powerful. This is my role to play. And then, uh, oh, wait. Um, I actually don't know their experience. I don't know anybody else's experience but mine, especially people um, who have been marginalized. And then, and then, and 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 on each one of these, I like to take the time, slow down, understand them better. But the where I feel your your what I the significance of what I hear you saying is, and I actually do have some expertise that I can contribute, and it's important to be clear on that too. And all of those different points of recognition on the Dharma of being active feel like they slowly balance themselves out to a, a, a more healthy, hopefully productive approach to your practice. I, I think so. And I think the, the, the progress from one stage to the next, that's, that's what I talk about with comfort. That's why we, I have to be okay being uncomfortable, screwing up over and over again, while recognizing that when I screw up, people can get hurt as a result. And that's, you know, trying to minimize that. But at times I'm, I'm going to mess up and feel horrible about myself and be okay with that. Because if I'm just solely dedicated to being comfortable, I never take those risks. I never, I never say, well, maybe I do know something about this and risk stepping on someone else's toes because I'm the white voice in the room, the white male voice in the room that's now um, saying, this is where, where I think I can add value. But the reality is, in most of the rooms I'm in, in those spaces, I'm the only one that has experience in the power structure. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm the guy with the blueprints for how to dismantle it in some ways, or maybe I don't have the blueprint, but I've got something closer to what uh, dis, disempowered and disenfranchised populations have. You understand um, the system. Yeah, but better, better than a lot of the people that I work with, at least. So I want to take this to a, a, a much more sort of day world level, because I think one of the dangers of being in this active social justice, you know, civil rights work is that most people aren't there. Most dudes, most men, most bozos are not there. So it feels like these same principles also can easily be applied to, say, being in relationship with women, Mm -hmm. being in relationship with people of color, being in relationship with colleagues, your boss, your family. So, and I want to reiterate those stages, Mika, because they feel really important. And tell me if I'm getting these right. Essentially, we're talking about ignorance, right? And then we're talking about some kind of awakening to our privilege in the case of white men. Uh, And then there's shutting up because we realize, oh my God, we're just entitled assholes. And I've been there too. I'd I'd call that humility Uh, or being humbled. Uh eventually there might be like a, a subsection to that because in, I know in my own experience initially shutting up was just humiliating. Okay. It wasn't, it wasn't humble. Okay. I was just like, wow, everyone's treating me like I'm a piece of shit. What did I do to them? This really sucks. I'm not going to say a fucking word. Yeah. It's often shame. I think more than humility. For yeah. Me, is yeah. That's the humiliation up. piece. Right. Yeah, yeah. It was shaming. 
Uh, and that's that kind of lack of skill that we all have collectively when it comes to what we're talking about right now. It's why I'm glad we're talking about it because I do use the word blueprint. I want us to continue to make blueprints for men to have more of a sense of where the hell they are and how they can move more skillfully in the world. So I would say, yeah, sort of that third step of shame and humiliation, shutting up, and then humility. Okay. Right? Because for sure that's got to be in there because that's wellness as I see it. Right? That, that we're understanding, okay, we didn't ask for this. It's not our fault. And it might be our responsibility to do a different thing. You know, from the outside, and I, and I want to let you finish your thought, mm-hmm. but from the outside... um, I think that humility and shame moment is also what is known outside of white cis straight male circles as white fragility. Right. I, sure. I think I think that's that's exactly that's been my experience at least. Um, and then I think that uh, when <laughs> our 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 true fragility is tested when we first hear that term, yep. and 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 what our reaction to it is like that's not fragility. You're an asshole. <laughs> uh, I'm not fragile. <laughs> Ah, defensiveness, a classic sign of uh, an uninitiated aspect of self. That's a great point. I yeah. know I got pretty defensive for a while, and then I, I, I think I mentioned this in our last uh, episode, but I went to a liberal arts college, and then I went to a liberal arts grad college, and was like one of the only white cisgender dudes there, and I mostly mm-hmm. just shut up. And I, when I did open my mouth, I've usually... F- pissed people off. Um, so there's that. Yes. And the fragility piece feels important to name that, um, being told we're, uh, in the wrong or being told, no, you don't actually know shit. The world order that you are familiar with is actually not. It is a construct (laughs) that you're at the top of. Yeah, exactly. Which, and I don't, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but it strikes me as we're working through this, this is the entire appeal of someone like Donald Trump because it's so much fucking work. I mean, oh, how many steps totally. are we doing? Seven steps now of, right. of this progress to get <laughs> totally. to the point of realizing I have value. I have something to offer. My voice also isn't the most important in the room. Yeah. And, and I need to be quiet and, and hear what other people say because as a white male, I'm always uh, being paid attention to more than other people in the same room. Um, and, and I think that for... Well, I guess statistically about 40 or so percent of the country, that's exhausting. And it's much more simple to say, this is crazy. This is overly politically correct. People need to just deal with their own shit and deal with the fact that I might be offensive at some times and don't take it personally. And of course it's, you know, it's, it's funny that, that frequently the people that are saying that are taking things most personally when it comes back on them. But I think, yeah, 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 but I think it does kind of explain this division we have in our country right now and probably have always had, but it's more attuned right now um, to this piece of, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work and, and, and a lot of, um, of course it comes with the privilege we have, but it's a lot of work to, to, to care enough about, basic fairness for other people to, to step into those spaces and, and get your ass kicked once in a while and then, then realize, okay, I got to learn from that and be better. Yeah. Just to make that connection, it seems like there's a deep correlation between entitlement and fragility. Mm. Sure. Yeah. And, and also I, I appreciate what you just said, Steve, there, there's privilege even in the fact that we get to look at this shit and work on it. 
that we're not, you know, in the poorhouse uh, being racially profiled by cops in a downtown metro area. We're dudes hanging out in an office in, on a sunny ass day in, in a white boulder, Colorado. So that's important to name too. Thank right. You. Yeah. My, my suspicion is there aren't a lot of, uh, a lot of podcasts like this being recorded in, in, in the poor house, um, for that exact yeah, reason. I think right. that's, I think that's a, um, that's a, a really important piece of this. And then I, I just think for me, my kind of tuning fork on this stuff tends to be because we have, because I have that privilege, then there's a certain responsibility that comes with it. And that's what I think drives purpose is recognizing there's, there's something bigger at play here. Yeah. I can choose to sit on my couch and, Eat cookies and masturbate. I'm pretty sure is is, is, is where we're at today. Now, um, but now I got that vision in mind. <laughs> what if we do it with cookie dough? Watching West Wing, I think was a yeah. A that's thing at uh, some West point. Wing. Right. <laughs> Good call. It took me months to figure out what the hell Mink was talking about. Oh, yeah. Shit. Shit. West Wing code for wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> Steve, do you have role models? I do. It's something that I've. Um, I think I've become a little more aware of the fact that I, cause I don't really have any mentors and I, I haven't, I've got more role models than mentors. Um, in the, the legal space, it's really Jerry Spence. Who's, um, widely regarded as the greatest American trial lawyer ever. Uh, isn't never- he the same man you talked about with the, uh, the lawyers like theater, Trial Lawyers College. Trial Lawyers College, yeah, where you do this, like, theatrical stuff. Right, yeah. So Spence was, um, he's from Wyoming. He's widely was viewed as, like, the cowboy lawyer. He's he's primarily known as being um, the the commentator for CNN during the O.J. Simpson trial. He's Mm -hmm. always wearing a cowboy hat and his fringe jacket. But he's never lost a case. He's an unbelievable lawyer. And and the reason for that, he's now in his 90s, um, is because... He's early in his career realized the importance of relating to people and understanding uh, what individuals go through on a daily basis and, and, and the degree to which we all go through those same things and dealing with his own shit. And the way he did that was through psychodrama, uh, which is a psychological modality invented, I think, in the 20s by a German psychologist named E.L. Moreno. And it's really a it's very similar to gestalt therapy. Uh, you sit in group and reenact traumatic events. And yeah. he's been doing that for 40 years and has trained now, I think five or 600 uh, lawyers to do the same. Um, so we do it in, with ourselves, we do it with our clients. And ultimately when we go to trial, we present our client stories in a way where we really understand what they've been through mm. because we've lived it with them in a reenactment. Um, and they understand what they've been through. And very frequently in those moments, because of the degree of trauma we store in our bodies from traumatic incidents, mm-hmm. um, that stuff comes up and they'll remember things they never remember before. I'm getting a little far afield. And, and you No, know, what I'm hearing you say isn't, isn't I, I appreciate what you're saying and I appreciate you describing it. But what I'm also hearing in your description is your embodiment of what feels like not just a, a purpose, but um, you being able to recognize and feel comfortable in a calling that you're getting better and better at, that you feel comfortable with. Yeah. Which brings us back full circle to comfort, which I think is fascinating. To be able to be comfortable in the space that you're describing now versus the kind of comfort that we're sold as young white cis straight men retiring on the beach is what I'm supposed to be going for. But in fact, how does that comfort 
sit with the comfort that you're describing now of a sense of purpose and a sense of finding your calling feel now? Does it, can you, is that yeah. something you can describe I, a little? I think it's mixed. Um, there's a piece of it. I, I think in my mind, I probably had an idea from the time I was a kid that at some point I figure out what I was here to do in mm-hmm. quotes. And when Being I figured an astronaut that out, or a firefighter, exactly. Or yeah. a rock star. Right. Yeah. NFL quarterback totally. or something. All those realistic um, choices. Right. Exactly. And that's, those are kind of the archetypes given us as, as boys. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I didn't know what that was going to be. I mean, if I was good enough at football, I would have been playing football. I wasn't. And so it had to turn into something else. Um, I, I think I had this idea that once I figured out what that was, then life would be easy. And, and, and it isn't, I, I, there's days where I struggle and I'm like, is, is this really, is this it? Um, is this what I'm supposed to be doing? And there's, there's moments even in great days where I struggle with that. Mm. Is, am I really making the biggest impact I can? And am, am I, should I really even be trying to make an impact anyway? Is the fucking planet going to be here in 20 years? I mean, what's it going to look like? We'd be living underground somewhere because we don't have fresh air anymore. I mean, there's, there's so much of this that can feel overwhelming Mm-hmm. when when i let my my brain go there and and that's that's not every day but it's a lot of days and so it's i guess the answer is it's mixed there's there's moments where it feels great mm. to have that comfort in in knowing what my dharma is mm-hmm. um and there's a lot of moments where i still doubt it so i mean i guess some some scholars may say well that's not your dharma and you're you're not doing you're not doing that but i i don't yeah. know I mean, for, for me, it just feels like this is, I'm doing what I'm, what I, what I feel right now is the way to make the biggest impact, um, that I can make, uh, in the most important way. Uh, and for me at this moment in my life, that feels important. Might not 20 years from now. I don't know. But I I think that's probably part of what prevents me from getting too overwhelmed by the day-to-day setbacks of, we just spent three years on this case and it got dismissed on summary judgment by a court. And oh my God, now, you know, the Department of Corrections is going to be able to keep continuing to have these doors that don't lock and, you know, allowing inmates to be assaulted. And all this works for nothing. Discouraging. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so in those moments, I think it probably helps to have maybe a little bit of the mixed bag. Because if you're completely, I guess, locked into one purpose the rest of your life, then that, that can feel like a lot. I didn't get a grant that I was supposed to, that I was hoping for yesterday and feeling really discouraged about that. And... One and and reminding myself aggressively, it's not about the grant; it's about the journey. That's about the path. See, that's big, man. Because what I'm hearing you say, Steve, and I appreciate this question, Mika, and that example about the grant and having to be, you know, the ten thousand foot view. Yeah, we're talking about resilience, and and the difference between a culture that pushes us to always feel good. Watch this funny show. Ha ha ha. Have great sex somehow, even though we shame you for having sex and hypersexualize everything in the culture, um, <clears throat> which is a mindfuck on its own. Uh, but this idea of gratification as opposed to feeling happy, satisfaction as opposed to always having pleasure in this deeper way. Like, I, I think having doubt is an essential part of being alive. Doesn't make it easy. Doesn't make it comfortable. That's for sure. But asking ourselves, well, is this the thing for me to be doing? Yes, we can get lost in that question, like you said, Steve. 
And a, a, a phrase that comes up for me that I use often with myself and my clients is do the next right thing. When you're having a hard time and you're getting overwhelmed by the bigness of life and yeah, is the planet going to fucking be here in 20 years? Do the next right thing. I struggle with that most days. Futility, hopelessness, rage. And one of the things that keeps me grounded is doing the next right thing, which right now is talking with the two of you. And I mean that quite literally. Here we are doing the next right thing until we're done and then there's the next thing to do. Mm. Right. And And I think that's... For me, that puts in perspective this notion of purpose, which, you know, even though I feel like I'm in alignment with what I should be doing, I, it's hard to say what, what is that in, in, in the largest sense, a 40-foot view of what a civil rights lawyer is or does. There's a million different definitions of it. Um, but I can, I can look on a, on a moment-to-moment basis and say, what's the next thing I, what's the next thing I can be doing that's, that's going to move me forward or, or move this cause forward or this movement forward in, in an inch? Um, or, or maybe just, you know, move my self-care forward an inch, uh, mm-hmm. take a, take five deep breaths or, you know, go take a walk down by the Creek. Um, that, that's something that I've gotten from you, Jeff, that, that mm. has been extremely important of just that, that next right thing has been, uh, probably if there's an anti-North star, that might be my North star. Um, just, you know, what's, mm. what's the next thing in front of me that I can be doing that's going to make things a little better. Yeah. Right on. That has me, again, coming back to this sort of day world, men on the street, average Joe kind of deal. Um, Because the more wed unconsciously we are to the stories of what we deserve, you know, if I'm a man that, that has been told repeatedly, you deserve to have a wife who cooks and has sex with you all the time and cleans and doesn't complain and... You deserve to have a good life, and a good life means no problems, no friction, no challenge. Um, Then the more miserable we are, as opposed to being engaged in a way that has more reality. You know, like, oh, yeah, you got to work at this shit. You have to work at being human. You have to work at being a man. You have to work at being in a relationship. You have to work at understanding yourself so you know what is best for you, what's your North Star. That's some serious devotional work to get back to that idea. The Dharma, what's your devotional work in your life? Uh, it certainly has to include, in my opinion, self-care, which might be five deep breaths, walk around the park, taking a nap, you know, whatever it is. With a short time that we have left, I'm... I want to use the opportunity and value the wisdom and input that you might bestow on us as a civil rights lawyer on the one hand um, and on the other hand as just a good guy, what we call a better bozo. And I think these are two separate questions, but I do want to know from you what is it, Steve, you think we need to know that we might not know? Can you be more specific about for me? life? Yeah. In I, general? Sometimes I have, when I'm sitting in front of a microphone and I'm like, there, what is the bottom line right now? I have five minutes. What is it people need to know now that I can share? In my case, it'd be Palestine is occupied. Your tax dollars are paying for it. Vote Bernie or something like that. <laughs> That's a solid bottom line, man. <laughs> 
Um, I, and I don't know if there's something like that that you have in the back of your mind that's urgent, that you know is urgent for us to know. A, as a guy, as a good man, to the rest of us doofuses that are, you know, kind of figuring shit out, bumbling up the learning curve. Um, if there's some, if there's some, something we need to know. I think, um, kind of what comes to mind right away is working in a space in civil rights law that is constantly antagonistic. I always represent plaintiffs against the defendants, which are always cops, police departments, and governments. And seeing pretty much every day, uh, every day I, I work and every day while I'm doing my, my work, not my, you know, Byron Katie work or philosophical work, my civil rights work. Um, I'm seeing that the limits, I'm brushing up against the limits of how far antagonism can really take us. And I feel like there's a very, there's a a big piece of me that feels energized by being part of of a movement and part of a fight. And um, I, I don't see a good end to that story if that's the only answer. And I've, I I struggle with this because I don't know what the answer is, but I feel like there has to be some way if if this story of human history of, of America, this experiment of America is going to have a happy ending in any way um, or just not an unhappy ending, I guess. Um, we've got to find some way that we're actually able to connect with people that that fundamentally we have fundamental differences with, not a, a different you know party registration or different view on uh, trickle down economics, um, but real deep feelings of this person is a racist bigot Mm. and I'm not. And so I can never find any middle ground while we share these fundamental different views on humanity. Um, Especially poignant today. Right. Okay. And so that, that's for me, that's, that's the thing I think that I find myself being most curious about. It's one of the reasons why um, for, uh, you know, the, three or four months while she was a, a public figure, I was supporting Marion Williamson for president. I feel like she was the only candidate, even though she was lambasted by the mainstream media, that was really talking about that. That says so much to hear a civil rights lawyer say, Marianne Williamson. I, I just, it, there's a juxtaposition in that. There's a, there's, a, there's a polarity in that for me, hearing you say that. And at the same time, I think that's what's so... That's why I love it so much. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate and, that. And and I think that was a common perception about Marianne. Um, and she's still running, but obviously no longer part of the conversation as a whole. Um, was that she's the spiritual guru without real substance. But she was, you know, watching her announcement speech, she was the first candidate that called for reparations. Yep. Um, yeah. She was, uh, and, and that led to... Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker. I mean, mainstream candidates. She provided cover yeah. for the black candidates to call for reparations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think she knew that. Yeah. No, and, and I think similar, I mean, this is something I'm not often proud to admit, but I was a big John Edwards supporter in 2008 when he ran against Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. And Edwards' story obviously ended badly, um, but he was the first candidate to be calling for universal health care, to be calling for um, real meaningful reform to the corporate taxation system, um, ideas that Obama and Clinton picked up on and that led a lot of uh, Obama's uh, platform. And I mm. think Marianne did a lot of the same. She just didn't hang around long enough. Um, but in my view, Marianne was the the only candidate that was really speaking truth about civil rights issues. Bernie did it, but Bernie 
Bernie did it in this kind of slightly dismissive way of, I march with Dr. King and I've been doing this for 40 years, so please don't question me on my civil rights uh, mm. background and commitment. And, and I saw that firsthand uh, when Bernie spoke in Netroots Nation in Phoenix uh, mm-hmm, a number of mm-hmm. years ago. Um, and um, yeah, and Marianne for me was more than just a spiritual candidate. I think that the fact that she talked about the spiritual deficit in this country was very important. It spoke to me personally. Um, but the fact that she proposed that as a possible solution to what the main problem is here, which is not simply a difference in values. There are a lot of, a lot of major divisions in this country that aren't, that aren't going to be healed by that antagonism. And that's what I see in my work every day. Yeah, you know, we talk about that a lot um, around the men – Witnessing the men marching in Charlottesville with the tiki torches, mm. saying they will not replace us, Jews will not replace us, hella racist madness that I could absolutely, I can align myself in solidarity. Well, a, I don't. I'm as as a as a Jewish man, I I am absolutely offended by this, and I align myself in solidarity with the movement for Black Lives and the. Um, I feel like I'm massively entitled to take offense and that we all are massively entitled to take offense by the tiki torches. And it also occurs to me that it is my role as a cis straight white man to become available to tiki torch holding sons of bitches. Um, That it's way too easy for me to be judgmental and that there's work exactly there for us to do. And I say this in regards to your comments about Marianne Williamson or what we need to know in regards to, look, the justice system feels um, incapable of bridging what feel gaps, impassable gaps within it. And so it's whatever is going to happen will have to happen outside of that. And so we need to be paying attention on a larger level. Um, and that, anyway, so that's what reminds me of the Tiki Torches and that my, my role here as a better bozo, as a bozo, knowing that they're bozos and I'm a bozo and my, um, the conversation that we can be having is somehow related. Yeah. And, and I, for me, where that, I don't want to say the key to unlock it, it makes it sound too important, but, but where I personally find my ability to connect with with the tiki torch carrier with the the red hat wearing trump voter even though i've not actively put this in action very often there's not a lot of opportunity in boulder colorado um but where i can connect with uh with those folks is recognizing uh that i've got part of me that has been programmed from the time i was a child as a white boy in america to feel exactly the same way mm-hmm. to feel that sense of indignation like i'm being replaced mm-hmm. to feel uh, a sense of fear when i see uh migrants coming into america from other countries which is about as american a feeling as exists of i'm already here i was born here so now i'm afraid of other people coming here mm-hmm. it's been around since you know the 1800s um it's acknowledging that inside of me. And I think the, the, 
part of the framework for that I got from from Jeff's introduction of Bill Plock and to me of that kind of loyal soldier mm-hmm. um, that developed in response to probably my own traumas, but certainly societal programming and family programming and and recognizing. And, and this is uh, one of the things I'm coming to terms with very recently and very reluctantly of the fact that I'm racist and I've always been racist and denying that internal racist that fortunately doesn't drive the bus for me like it does for other people, but certainly exists. At least acknowledging that piece of me then I think is me some place where I can connect to someone who is, who's inner racist is driving the bus and, and gives us a place where we might be able to have a discussion that might not be super popular um, with people that would rather see me in the trenches fighting all the time. Um, but I think there's, there's other folks, certainly movement folks that say, you know, you're, you're a white male, your work is with other white men. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not, it's not with us. It's not, you know, you show up to the space, offer yeah. what you can. Great. And go back to your community and, and get those fuckers to take their red hats off and understand what they're doing. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Well, I think Miga talked about this before in one of the earlier episodes about right place. And you make a really good point around my work is not to work with black people or Latino people or any people of color unless they're actively seeking me out. My work is to work with white dudes like us in this room right now for the same reasons you're mentioning, which is we've been uh, had baked into us uh, a particular disposition that needs to be deconstructed, identified first and then deconstructed. And that's a painful process. Um, there's a couple things that come up for me around what you were just sharing. Um, that piece there. And also the piece about racism. I'm, I'm imagining, speaking of discomfort, getting our shorts in a bunch, you, I'm really impressed to be able to say you're a racist. Um, and a misogynist, but let's start with racist. <laughs> one, one, <laughs> whatever we're going to call those <laughs> at a time. Thanks, Steve. Sure. Uh, <clears throat> and that, another one, speaking of things baked into us. You know this this entitlement around women. You, you should have seen Jeff when I said I am Brett Kavanaugh. Oh, uh, <laughs> totally was like. Oh, oh, oh. And to your point, um, there's this thing that Harvard uh, pr- has produced for many years, and it's called the Implicit Association Test uh, (IATs). You can take them online; they're free. I think there's something twenty something now, and they have to do with race, and they have to do with uh, power, and they have to do with sex, and gender and and it was super humbling and and depressing when i took the the first time the implicit association test around race and it, it my results thinking i'm not a racist i'm a good dude i'm a white guy who really cares and blah, 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 blah. and i took it and it was like yes you have racist tendencies and i was like holy shit I'm a racist. And I went through the whole denial deal and was upset and she took it again. I was like, oh yeah, I'm a racist. Wow. And the important thing to mention here, I think, especially for the listeners who are like, fuck that, I'm not a racist, you know, which is a pretty common position, I think, for men to say, no, I'm, not, I'm nice to women. I'm nice to black people. I got one black friend. I'm nice to the janitor at the school for my kids. You know, I, that- I hashtag Black Lives Matter on my social media <laughs> posts. Right. And yeah, which I would mean, even be a more elevated position. I mean, this is my classic maneuver, which is to be a little bit better than other dudes in Coast. So that'd be a move I would do. Mm. Hashtag Black Lives Matter. Check me out. I'm good. And I've checked the box like you were saying, Mika. So that feels important that you can be racist and also not let it drive the bus, like you said. 
identifying tendencies and, and um, typically unconscious tendencies. It doesn't make us bad people. It actually makes us human and it makes us maybe a little more conscious. Uh, it's part of the divisiveness I think we're talking about too. It's so easy to be divided when we're not actually uh, in relationship with evaluating self, inquiry into self. I want to bring up this this woman named Dia Khan. You know her? Documentary filmmaker. Nika and I have talked about her a little bit. She she spent time with jihadists and neo-Nazis. Um, to this whole thing about... Uh, what did you put it? Uh, not aggression, but antagonism. Not being a viable solution. Um, what, the name of her films, uh, White Right, Meeting the Enemy, and also Jihad, A Story of the Others. And they're on Netflix. Um, and one of the cool things about the white right film that I was reading about is that she went into these neo-Nazi camps and was vilified by most everyone and feared for her safety in her life at times. And there were a couple of neo-Nazis that built a relationship with her and they left their neo-Nazi whatever club. Uh, and the reason she asked was, why did you do it? And they said, well, we're friends. And I don't like how they treat you. It was just about her. Mm. It wasn't about other women or other, uh, you know, Muslims. It was about her, which is fascinating. This whole notion of if we can work to actually humanize everyone, then that can act as a bridge towards, you know, combating misogyny, combating racism, combating prejudices in everyday life. That's a, that's a tough road to hoe. Sure. And I, and I, I put that out there with a, with the knowledge that I have no clue what that actually looks like in practice. I've never done it. I've, I've never mm -hmm. sat down, um, with, with someone who actively supports Trump and Trumpism yeah. and said, Hey, I've, I've got this big part of me. I was raised in America too, as a white boy and became a white man in the society. And I've got all of these unconscious biases and some conscious biases. And they only come to the surface if I happen to be walking down the street and I see a black man and, and all of a sudden these biases come up and I have to check that immediately and say, wait a minute, why am I wondering why he's in Boulder, Colorado where everybody else is white? Oh, that's that shit that I've had since I was a child. Mm. And it's not my fault. I'm not a bad person because I'm a bad person. If I act on it, I'm a, just a self-aware person and acknowledging that it's there. Um, well, I, I want to challenge you there, you know, so say you're a bad person if you act on it. I think that's part of the problem, actually. Mm. We're, we're dividing into good and bad, right mm. and wrong. Like, of course, we can get into an ethical debate about right and wrong, and it might be important. And I think for what you're pointing to, like, people act on things typically because they're ignorant, typically because they're scared, typically because they're confused, right? They don't know what else to do. So to say they're bad dudes or bad people, I feel like is dangerous in, mm. in the same way that the divisive language from, say, the, the far right can make Democrats feel justified in, you know, their position on the far, far left. So I, I feel what you're saying. And I also want to just put that out there. Yeah. And I want to also take a little bit of a step back. I think it's pretty easy to, to and you know, I, I brought it up to speak to the Tiki Torch carrying character. Tiki Torch carrying character is less than a percent of of the folks we live around, I think. Um, and and the bozos that I hope to speak to through this podcast 
are more of a you and me kind of guys. Because the vast majority of us, A, definitely still benefit from from the myriad of privileges. Um, B, are probably for the most part unaware and unfamiliar. Um, And more than anything, C, still actually, especially now more than ever, post hashtag me too, Trump is president. It's hard to miss. We're not speaking in a vacuum. I think a lot of us more than anything are confused. We're not carrying tiki torches. We're just confused. And sometimes being confused means, you know what, I'd rather stay home and watch TV. And other times it means, oh, there's a podcast I can listen to. Maybe this will be helpful. But when it comes to not being active, as an organizer, a lot of what we do often is do uh, an exercise called the spectrum of allies. We map who are the folks that I may not completely agree with, um, but who's on my radar that are my uh, the organizations that are already active around the 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 cause that I'm uh, trying to promote and uh you know who's more radical less radical and we put them on the on the on the whiteboard and what ends up happening is actually the majority of people are still not on that whiteboard that spectrum of allies is still a min- minority of people and so what I'm hoping um that we address the people I'm hoping we manage to you know what do we call them I think sometimes people call them a silent majority, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that's the right term either. But I just, I'm just saying that in order to take a, a step back from, look, we're not neo Nazis. That's not the point. The point is that I have my sympathies because yes, I grew up in a in a racist racist uh, structure, and I have racist tendencies to the extent that it's probably I really admire you saying it. I have never actually said it out loud. I am racist. And, I, and and that's a that's an important point to make. But I, ju- I just want to name those. I just want to name that spectrum. It doesn't mean neo Nazis. I, I think that's important, and and because I I think that's where I use the term Trump voters because I think it's the easiest way to identify that movement. Um, the vast majority of Trump voters are not tiki torch carriers, right? Right. Um, but that's where they feel pigeonholed by the left, and it's like that's not me. I just don't agree with. I think there a lot of it is the Jordan Peterson crowd. It's it's the reaction to um, political correctness, right. um, which, compelled pronouns, right? And, and and it's it's a feeling that the culture I grew up in is being eviscerated, and I'm being force fed a new culture that I don't like. That is hyper intellectual. Um, that is exactly the opposite of of you know. I I might have a high school degree. I might have a college degree, um, but I certainly I'm not someone that's going to get super caught up in this word versus that word. And I don't understand when people get offended by it and they don't necessarily grasp that. That's a piece of it. There's a piece of it that's economic and there's a piece of it that's certainly rooted in race. But I think that the racism feels to me like a, like a landmine that if we don't acknowledge if it's there, it's very easily exploited. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we do acknowledge it's there, it makes us more trustworthy to everybody around us, both on the right and the left, because it's not like, Black folks are sitting around saying, oh, yeah, I, I think Benedetto doesn't have a racist bone in his body because he's a civil rights lawyer. Um, and there's part of me that still that comfort piece of it would be more comfortable to act like that's not true. Uh, most of my clients are black. And if they listen to this podcast, which they may or may not, um, what are they going to think? And and my suspicion is they're going to think, of course, he's fucking racist. He's a white guy raised in America. How could he not be racist? <laughs> right. It's owning it that allows me to separate myself from it and then not allow that to, to run the show. See, that feels big, too, in terms of 
uh, the literature I've read, um, well, that sounds kind of bougie to say the literature I've read, but to, to your point around, well, it's just everyday reality for, for instance, for black people that, yeah, of course, white dudes are fucking racist. Of course. Like, of course they have privilege. Of, of course, you know, he's got a different life than I do. It's just so important. I think for us as white men to get us just even a sliver of their day-to-day reality. And so I'm really grateful you said that because it's next to impossible to feel it because mm-hmm. how could we? It's just, there's just no way. And to also acknowledge that there's just no way I can know someone else's experience and I can sure try. And this is where shutting up and listening feels really important mm. of just, you know, making a space for someone to be able to say what's true for them on the daily. Uh, and we're probably going to be pretty uncomfortable. But if we don't do it, who else will do it? Well, and I think when we do that is an opportunity, for me at least, when I do that, is an opportunity for me to recognize that inner racist voice that wants to defend something, and I don't know why, but when I hear about someone's experience, a black man or a black woman or Hispanic, um, any any person of color and their experience with systems that haven't treated me the same way, yeah. there's an inner voice of... of Oh well, that's just their experience, and that's their, right, that's exaggerated right, right. in some way. And it's taken years of me sitting with clients and, and hearing their experiences, particularly with police, because I grew up in a small town, southern New Jersey, and all white. And the police were like, "Who I called when my bike got stolen?" And they found it and brought it back. And um, nice you know, guys, yeah. My brother got in trouble for like knocking mailboxes off and kind right. of thing that now uh, a young black boy could get shot for, but certainly at right. least arrested and charged as an adult for disorderly conduct and you know yeah. damaging property, criminal damage. Um, the cops came to the door with him, knocked on my door and talked to my parents and said, hey, you know, make sure you have a, a stern, stern conversation with him. That was my experience of cops when I was a kid. Um, and for me to hear very different experiences with cops and not, not try to defend it, I try to defend, well, that's not how all cops are. Oh, of course it isn't, but that's their experience. Um, but I think yeah. those conversations are an opportunity for me to hear those voices in my head that I don't think are present when I'm not having those conversations, when I'm not listening to people tell me about their experience. Well, because they don't have to be. Sure. Back to the privilege. Yeah. Yeah. So I think in terms of time, I can be good to wrap. So how does that feel? Mika? <laughs> I feel like I can go on for a long time, and I really appreciate you coming up. Well, um, I feel like if Steve's game <laughs> to go again, because so many things came up that feel potent that I'd like to slow down like we're doing earlier and, and actually specifically have you back on to talk more about, especially these last pieces around conversations. If we're not putting ourselves in a position to have them and to hear other people's experiences that are not white, cis men in America and how vital that is to understanding how to participate differently and how we've been unconsciously participating for probably most of our lives, if not all of our lives. And I think maybe how that helps us understand ourselves. As men, because again, for me, it's only been through hearing those stories, really being there with people when they're talking about their, their traumas and their very different experiences that then I get a light shined on what exactly it is that makes me up. And then I can actually exercise some discernment over who I do allow to drive the bus instead of just doing it unconsciously. Yeah. Right on. Well, I really appreciate, um, so much of today's conversation, 
parts of it feel a little bit like a ramble. And then when it comes down to, um, some, uh, you know, being open to some intimate revelation, uh, and reaching kind of the core of being able to say, yes, I'm racist and being able to understand where you're coming from as a civil rights lawyer, um, and the integrity that you brought to the podcast today, I think is, is I, I really appreciate that. Thank you for that. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Any, anytime. Great. You can do the next one right now if you want. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Steve Benedetto. Thanks for being on The Better Bozo. Thank you. And uh, Mika and I will break this down after Steve leaves. We'll talk about him behind his back. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, man. Thanks, man.